Welcome to Ontario Loud, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Alvin Tejo. And I'm Alexi White. Today we're going to be talking about party politics, and more specifically, how parties in Ontario and across Canada elect their leaders, candidates, and even take on members. While we may have electoral regulations and important institutions like Elections Ontario and Elections Canada to manage our general elections and to actually elect members of parliament to legislatures, our party system and how they select their candidates and leaders are much less scrutinized and consistent than you may think. Every party in Canada essentially functions as if it were its own private club. They can set the rules, eligibility criteria for their candidates, set fees, and essentially decide who can or cannot run as a candidate or even be a member of their party. This isn't necessarily a bad thing in my opinion. Parties function as a collective of individuals with like-minded ideas and policy agendas. Being too far away from the group doesn't really make sense when you're supposed to be playing on the same team with the same goals in mind. However, party politics can get really complicated when people or groups of people within the party disagree on what the party should stand for or who they should get to stand for that party in elections. We've recently had a number of leadership elections here in Ontario with the Ontario Liberal Party, and we're currently seeing two federal parties hold leadership elections with the Conservatives and Greens, both replacing their leaders in Andrew Scheer and Elizabeth May. And with a minority government, all the federal parties are looking to be prepared with a full state of candidates whenever the writ drops. And here in Ontario, with only 23 months until the next scheduled election, parties are already starting their nominations now to get a jump on fundraising and awareness. So to help us with today's discussion, we've got Christopher Zabane, who's a leadership communications professional, political organizer, campaign manager, consultant, and coach who's worked for municipal candidates and political parties, including the Ontario Liberal Party and Federal Greens. He's also a Queens alum, so bonus points there. Welcome to the pod, Chris. How are you doing? Wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing pretty well in these COVID days. Uh, maybe I'll start things off with just a, a question about parties in general. So I've I've voted for and I've been a member in multiple progressive parties uh, in my life. Um, but that sometimes seems strange to people who just don't even want to join parties. We know that less than a percentage of Canadians are actually members of political parties. Um, but they get they, they get to control so much of what gets debated and even who gets to run. They really are the gatekeepers of the system. So, I mean, what does it say? Is it a bad thing for our democracy that so few people join political parties? What is their general role to you in uh, playing that first crucial step in the democratic process? There's several different ways of looking at that. The easy answer would be, of course, it's bad. You want more people involved in political parties because that way you get more diversity of opinion within the party itself. Another opinion could very well be, well, I don't have time for that. I want people who have a great interest in public policy and in politics themselves to itself rather to actually do this sort of pre-work not really for us, but with our interests in mind. So that way, when policies and candidates come forward, I know that they've been thought about by people who have deep passion, knowledge, and understanding in these areas. Now, the pro of that is that you get people with deep knowledge and passion understanding in those areas. The con of that is that the small number of people in these parties can set the agenda and set the conversation, which may or may not be in line with what Canadians want in general across the board. So that's a a tough question. I would offer that being involved in a political party, it, it can sometimes be seen as kind of a, you know, not a dirty thing, but can be seen as something that's a bit uncomfortable because it means that you're lobbying for public opinion and votes. So it's an odd place to be. 
And one of the reasons I find it so powerful to be involved in a political party is because it's a chance to do that thing, set, help set that agenda towards what I believe and what I believe members of my community, my neighborhood, uh, my province, my country believe is the right direction to move forward. Yeah. I mean, I think, Chris, you and I have a lot of uh, some similar experiences working with parties. I often tell people that it is more effective, I believe, to join a party and to try and change the direction or uh, influence the policy of that party by being a part of it versus lobbying the government externally, right? I think if you're part of the team and you're in the room, then you can help steer it towards uh, your causes, which is why I believed that the ideal party is a big tent party that allows as many people into it as possible and reduces barriers. And, uh, you know, I pushed the free membership for the Ontario Liberal Party uh, at last year's AGM. The party's recently adopted that. And uh, an interesting debate came up because is it a is it a party that's sort of exclusive for people who want to pay a fee and to, uh, you know, go to meetings and stuff like that? Or is it really a movement of people with similar like-minded ideas? What do you think? Oh, okay. There's, there's two key threads there I want to pick on. The first one is one of the most, the biggest effect you can have in a political party and a large effect you can have on political politics in general is by getting involved in a leadership election. I would absolutely agree. If you have a series of issues you feel are important, Join that political party, even just to ask those questions of candidates in public settings, so they have to talk about them, you're changing the debate, and vote for the leader you feel is the one that best represents your values. So I'd absolutely agree, one of the best things you can do is get involved during a leadership race. They don't happen very often, and they're incredibly impactful. Now, here's part two of what you were saying, why you think a big tent party is a good thing. I want to offer a countering opinion. Big tent, boring ideas. If you try and get too many people inside this tent, there's a lot of internal discussion. And one could argue that having a lot of internal discussion that then presents broader policies to the electorate can be a good thing. It can also lead to a lot of blasé policies. It can lead to do-nothing incrementalism. One of the reasons I'm a green and a very strong green is because I believe we are out of time on a lot of issues around the environment. And you've heard this rhetoric before. I'm not going to go on about it at length. But we see in other parties that may be more uh, incrementalist or centrist that you can't get that focused opinion. And so if you have larger or if you have more parties with broader diversity of opinions, you can have these discussions in public where it should be in the legislature, which I think leads to one of the things we'll be talking about too soon. Sorry to steal that lead from you. This idea that we need to uh, reform our electoral system so that we can have more proportional representation more conversations. You can have them at a level where more people are involved in the public discourse with having to have parties work together. So I would offer big tent parties have limitations around the policies they can put forward. And uh, they may not always lead to brave or really forward thinking policies. Uh, I agree with everything you said, including the PR stuff. And we'll get to that. I just before we move on from parties, I guess I found it interesting that you said uh, if you want to drive ideas, join a leadership campaign. Uh, and I think a lot of people who haven't been part of a party might think, well, wait a second, like, if I want to be part of idea crafting, 
isn't it enough just to join the party? Like, isn't the whole idea that the party is supposed to develop these ideas? And so I just want to pick on that a little bit. Like, is is the experience of just being a member of a party today actually an experience where one gets to meaningfully impact where that party goes? Or do we have a system where uh, the leaders uh, really have and their, their campaigns really have taken over the idea generation from the grassroots? And what does that say about where parties are at today? Well, I think it depends on the party. So you have some parties where leaders will try and set the direction and policy. And uh, Green's example, the members set the policy and the leader enacts that policy. Other parties, you can have the members set the policy as well, but there's a lot more reliance at the top. The really, really great example of everyone's favorite astronaut, Chris Hatfield, and he has this great example in his book about coming in at a zero. Now, if you're coming into a new situation, even as a skilled astronaut or pilot, whatever it may be, you don't want to come in thinking you can make things better immediately. Because what can happen is you can disrupt the systems and people that are already working. And instead of coming in at a plus one, you can end up coming in at a minus one. So his philosophy is come in at a zero, figure out how things work, figure out what's working and what's not, have some understanding about it, gain some social capital, learn who the people are, say hello, introduce yourselves. That way, when you want to put forward ideas, you can do so in a way that gets more buy-in because these are parties of people and you have to understand who these people are. So we can have those changes within a party if we're willing to come in and be part of that party, show up, volunteer, help, show people that you care and that you're there to help. But that can be tough. There's barriers to time and accessibility for some of these events. And it's not always easy. It depends on the party. It depends on how bold you want to be. Because we've seen where if someone's pushing a really bold idea, let's say, I don't know, universal basic income <laughs> or merging the Catholic school board with a public school board, they may be very forward-thinking ideas that the membership may not be ready for. How do you feel about that one, Alvin? Well, I mean, I was going to counter your argument earlier. <laughs> with, um, I mean, I do think it's important, especially in the larger, you know, let's take the conservatives and the liberals and the larger big tent parties to make sure that we have those voices who are advocating for those, what could perhaps be viewed as fringe ideas in the past, like a basic income. Because now, now it looks like after our campaign, after my campaign was talking about it for 12 months, that everyone, at least all the leadership candidates in the party were supportive of bringing back the pilot. And we, I think, really moved the dial on the members in the party being supportive of a universal basic income to the point that we're now considering it being part of our program going into 2022. And, you know, a lot of the federal liberals are talking about the CERB being a portion of that and whether or not to continue it or turn it into a full basic income. So, you know, I think there's certainly space there to steer the big ship in the right direction and to make it feel and make people in the party understand how it relates and affects them from their own lens, right? If you're, if you and I are having a conversation, both as liberals, and we're talking about this as basic income as an idea that could really help a lot of people and help us win elections versus listening to external stakeholders convincing, trying to convince us to do that. It's not the same. We don't have the same relationship. Right. So that's why I think it's important to be involved in a party, even especially if you have differing views, to try and steer the larger ship towards towards those goals. But I think what you raised was an interesting point as well, Chris, about leadership elections being the vehicle for a lot of this, because it seems like parties tend to go in the direction that 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 leaders do. And Alexi was talking about this a second ago earlier, but those don't happen too often. So how 
do you try to affect change in between leadership elections? How do you get candidates that are are worth recruiting and trying to help steer the ship from the inside, so to speak? You know, should we take the good parts of leadership elections that allow for that type of conversation and diversity of opinion to occur? And how do we sort of disseminate that through, you know, regular time uh, in between elections? But also, you know, what do you like or hate about the leadership election process for some of these parties? There's a lot there. And I'm going to I'm going to wax poetic about you, Alvin, here for a minute, because we've known each other for like 17, 18 years or so. And I know you've been passionately involved in politics and helping to improve people's lives for a very long time. And the work you did in the Ontario leadership election to push issues you believed and cared about was impressive. And it's funny because at times I'm like, he must know that the membership may not be ready, at least the liberal membership may not be ready for the, for some of these policies at this point. Yet you kept pushing those ideas with conviction. But that's something that's so powerful about leadership elections. I find it unfortunate that people who are willing to change the conversation often get their ideas taken elsewhere and watered down in a bit more of an incrementalist or piecemeal format. Then those are, well, this person wanted the moon. That's too far. Why don't we just blast off into the lower atmosphere. That's fine. And then people lose their fire around it. Yeah, we might cut all that stuff about Alvin being great just because his head's already big enough over here on Ontario <laughs> Lab. But, um, Fair we'll enough. See, see if we leave it in. I, just to, So that was really interesting. But I, I'm interested in now comparing all that you just said, which I think was, was absolutely true about the power of leadership elections to have a conversation and to change a party. What about local candidate elections? The Ontario Liberal Party has recently made some decisions around quotas for uh, saying 50% of their candidates are going to be women in the next election and 30 of the candidates will be under 30. Uh, How do you feel about that kind of approach from political parties, uh, given all you've said about leadership? So I think it's excellent to have goals and to have targets, to have the individuals that you nominate reflect the makeup of the country or province as it may be. The issue is that let's say you want to have 30 under 30. Well, where are those 30 going to be? Are they in winnable ridings or are they in no chance ridings? Because if you're putting some people in no chance ridings, you're meeting your quotas for those candidates, but you're basically saying, we know this is no winnable riding, so we'll just shove them over there. And then we're still going to have the same OWGs or old white guys in power. I kind of want to go back to process a little bit. How do you feel about the electoral process for electing leaders? Because it is different um, across parties. And as I sort of said in the intro, it's kind of the Wild West. People can do what they want and people can manipulate the rules to potentially benefit you know, one candidate or the other. You could argue one member, one vote should be more democratic, but you also have different versions of one member, one vote, where you have all members uh, created equal across Canada, like the NDP has, where it doesn't matter you know, where those votes are, whether or not they're isolated in individual writings, versus the Conservatives or even, I believe, Greens, where you have essentially local elections to give you points for that riding to have a more balanced national representation, which sort of system do you think is, you know, more democratic or would be better for, for parties to implement? Well, and this is where we start to get into uh, some real fun because there's no perfect answer. There's different systems that you alluded to. There's a one member, one vote where everyone, no matter where they are, their vote counts the same. This idea sounds wonderfully democratic, but then the 
counter argument to that is, well, now you have the, the rule of cities. And if you're more spread out in rural environments, your ideas or opinions matter less. And now you have candidates pretty much going to big cities or big population centers to campaign there. The alternative, if, you, if you're saying, well, let's do it weighted or let's do the delegate systems like the Ontario Liberals still use, then it changes the game, it changes the math, and it creates some more layers. And ideally, I mean, let's 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 talk OLP for a moment. You have a delegate system where uh, ridings elect delegates, then those delegates go to convention, and then those delegates are locked in for the first ballot to the uh, leadership candidate that they were elected to represent. Then after that, they can do whatever they want. Is that system democratic? Well, I suppose in part. That's great for the horse and buggy era where it was really hard to get together. But now you can you know, Zoom, you can call or tweet or text everyone in your riding instantaneously you know, to, get, to get feedback and opinions. I mean, are they going to message you back? <laughs> Probably not if they're busy. It's one o'clock in the morning on a delegated convention. But is that system better or worse? They, they have benefits, pros and cons. I personally feel that the delegate system is, while very exciting and very cinematic in many ways, is outdated. And others would argue that the weighted, the one member, one vote, unweighted, just pure one member, one vote is going to force campaigning and enforce a discussion to be local to big population centers. I don't know the right answer to that one. I'm in favor of more democracy. I'm in favor of some form of one member, one vote, whether it's weighted or pure one member, one vote, I, because I believe that gives people more individuals, it gives them agency and it uh, this was a whole part of the weighted one member, one vote campaign, which I was uh, assisting on uh, last year to help change the way the Ontario Liberals voted for their leader because it, it there's problems with it. The, the delegates who go are of a certain socioeconomic background, or they may be more old guard or insiders, and some like that, some don't. It doesn't really keep things moving. It doesn't keep things fresh. It doesn't keep ideas changing as quickly as they need to in this day and age. Very quick follow-up to that. Do you think that there should be any membership fees charged for people who want to vote in these uh, leadership elections, or should they be opened up to everybody? I mean, I'm, I myself have actually joined political parties that I don't uh, agree with solely so that I could cast an a vote in their leadership contest, because I think it's important that whoever that party puts forward is somebody that is the best of the candidates available to represent that perspective, in my opinion. So should that be something that more political parties allow so that they can get a greater number of people weighing in on their leadership, or should it be restricted to members? Well, and this is where we get into the realm of behavioral economics. We value something more when there is a cost associated with it. If there is no cost to joining a party, then anyone can join. That's great. But there's less of a there's less of a buy-in, like literally and figuratively, figuratively, energetically, emotionally. If I'm paying money into a party, then there is more of a sense of well, I want to do my research and figure out what's going on. I want to be part of this decision process. If you're not paying money, you have less skin in the game, so to speak. So I would argue that membership fees are important. They don't need to be very high. Uh, I, I know the arguments that, you know, for some folks, uh, $10, that $10 fee is choosing between a few more groceries or not. I appreciate that. I respect that. But no, I, I, I do believe that party membership fees are important, not for the party coffers, so that people have buy-in. They have some skin in the game and uh, they're more likely to assign value to the votes they're making 
And I would argue, I don't have data for this, I would argue that they're more likely to do their research. I think in principle, that is what it should be for. Uh, and it's a very good ideal to hold on to and to imagine that that's how it functions. I don't necessarily agree that that's what you get because, and I'm just going to pick on the conservatives because I like to, but the last conservative round of nominations in Ontario when Patrick Brown was leader is still currently being investigated by the OPP for fraud, for 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 faking memberships, for stealing data from the 407, and for you know people essentially stuffing $10 bills into envelopes and giving it to the party with a list of names of people who don't uh, have any true affiliation to that party. So, my concern with the existing system in most parties is that it's very corruptible. This, And I've said this on the pod before. This is the darkest corner of politics in Canada that we don't understand or realize happens all the time. And it makes our local nominations, I think, very undemocratic and more about financial resources, which kind of takes us back to the conversation around the fact that there are now a number of barriers, so to speak, in terms of who gets to run for these leaderships, uh, who gets to run in these local candidate elections. The Conservatives had a $300,000 entry fee. When the Ontario Liberals doubled their entry fee for us uh, candidates from 50000 to to 100000 I thought it was I thought it was a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. But 300000 I mean, it shuts the door on anybody who wants to sort of create a movement to start a conversation on new policy ideas. And you have a more extreme view, I think, of people who are pandering to a certain subset of the population who potentially have the resources or the organization capacity, be it religious or otherwise, uh, to support candidates like that. And I think that's why you're seeing all these conservative candidates run to the right uh, and try to outdo each other in terms of who's going to be more trump light than the other person. But I mean, those are my concerns around that. Well, hold on. We're conflating issues here. One is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, one seems to be the issue of should individuals need to buy a party membership? And the second piece you're bringing up around is an entry fee for leadership candidates. Yeah, but I'm saying individuals who need to buy membership, I think that's a good principle, as you were saying. And and why it's useful to have people pay for memberships. What I think the reality is, is that maybe not most people, but a significant number of people don't actually pay for their memberships and are being courted through um, cultural associations, religious groups, special interests, whatever it is to vote for a particular candidate and somebody else with deep pockets is funding uh, that movement, right? And I think that's been happening in Canada and in Ontario for a long time, and we haven't really sort of addressed it. I think the free part of the membership sort of democratizes the process by not allowing that advantage to those to those groups. If they want to organize, go ahead and organize, but do it the appropriate way, I think is sort of my opinion on that. I, I agree with what you're saying. There is money in politics. And I mean, I, I'm not going to get in, I probably might get in trouble for saying this, but we know it's a known thing that this happens in delegated conventions where uh, candidates will, or the parties of candidates rather, not the candidates themselves, the parties, the campaigns of candidates will buy memberships for individuals. They will pay for their or reimburse their hotels and their uh, fees. But even if you get rid of the fees for $10, $20, whatever it may be, 
there's still, and again, using the Ontario Liberals as an example, there's still a delegated convention, which has a very high cost. You have the ticket itself, hundreds of dollars. You have the hotel, hundreds of dollars. You have travel to the event, hundreds of dollars. You have food, however much you want to spend on that. So that does actually doesn't get rid of the issue. It's still going to be a problem. You could have free membership, but someone is still going to hum and haw about going to a convention. And if that convention is paid for them, then that's that's that. But what if we change the scenario to just a, a nomination battle in a local riding? So there are multiple people running for you know the liberal a nomination in Toronto Centre. And those people can go out and basically, quote unquote, sell memberships through the process that Alvin was talking about, where people aren't really buying entry to the party. They're being organized through people who have money and want to pay for those people's memberships so that they can vote in that local nomination. And all they have to do then, the only barriers show up and vote on at the nomination uh, meeting itself in that local riding. So when you don't have all those other costs, uh, like you do with a delegated convention, I mean, how does how does it then make sense to have any kind of uh, financial barrier when we know that there's so much uh, room for this to be used in the way that we've we've all sort of acknowledged is happening across Ontario? You know, and that's a that's a very good argument. I don't think I have a good answer for that, and I don't think the general theory around. If you pay for membership, you have a you have skin in the game. I don't think that really stands up in this particular practical manner, uh, given the things you brought up. So I don't think I have a good answer for that one. <laughs> well, let's try to wrap this up around ideals and what we could do to reform the system. I know you've been an advocate for proportional representation, and you know what's what's the pitch to voters or even party members in terms of how it would benefit society or parties towards more electoral reform. So where's the benefit? People feel like their vote matters. How often do we hear, well, I'm going to hold my nose. We have a saying, I'm going to hold my nose and vote for someone. And this other saying in Canada, we don't vote, uh, we don't vote in politicians, we vote them out. That is sad and frustrating. You want to change the game in politics? You want to have your vote actually mean something? Then have it mean something. The rage that so many progressives still feel towards uh Mr. Trudeau, for blatantly breaking that promise, his 2015 campaign promise, it is shocking. And the effect that had on the last election in 2019, people did not want a conservative, so they held their nose and they voted for uh, Trudeau. I know we're first past the post system, that's how the country was created, and that's great, and it worked for us back then. It's not representative of who we are, of our diversity of thought, of our diversity of parties. And at the speed at which things need to change for us to avoid a climate catastrophe and for us to make sure people can still put food on their table and, and look after their families. By not changing our political system, we are allowing ourselves, our business as usual, to erode the public trust that we have left in our institutions and in our government. And it's shame on our public politicians, our, our, all of our parties, for not actually doing what's in the public interests instead of what's, on their, what's in their own interests. Zooming in on that more, there are many different types of PR. And this becomes an issue as soon as people agree that they want proportional representation. Are you, do you, are you in favor of a straight up PR system? Do you think there need to be uh, additional pieces, more complicated uh, systems put in place in order to ensure geographical representation or some other form of representation? I mean, where would you, what's your ideal system down to the, the very specifics? We have two systems that have been deemed to be excellent choices for Canada. They are mixed member proportional where we would have to add a few seats. You get one vote for your local representative, so there's always local representation, and one vote for the party. 
Then there's another system called single transferable vote, which basically means you still get local representation and you get your party, the parties you choice, your choose still get to be in uh, at a relatively proportional system as well. There are two systems that work. In Canada, because we are so geographically large, we do need something that does keep uh, take into account regionality. But if you're in a city, the difference between Toronto Danforth, where I live, and Beaches East York is negligible. So why do we need to have that much of a difference or, uh, of uh, representation in two relatively equal ridings? So we could have larger, more grouped ridings in cities, and we could have still have our uh, single ridings in rural areas. And that would allow us to have some element of proportionality. Does that cover it? Sounds great, Chris. Thanks so much for coming on. (laughs) This was fun. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Fantastic. Thank you so much to Christopher Zabani for coming on today's episode. That's all the time we have. Please don't forget to like, follow, or subscribe to Ontario Loud on your podcast app or across social media. Ontario Loud is Karima Tawal Kapoor, Alexi White, Sam Andry, Chris Martin, and me, Alvin Tejo. We are supported by amazing volunteers, Aisha Anwar and Harman Mundi. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. To become a supporter yourself, you can go to patreon.com slash OntarioLoud or at OntarioLoud.ca and click on the Patreon link. Take care, everyone. Stay safe.